And welcome to the Heaton Podcast. In what is a departure from the norm, uh, rather than having John, myself and Ollie running the podcast, today we are actually going to have two of our current pupils interviewing our guest. Our guest today is Dr Holly Reeve, a former pupil of King's High who went on to study chemistry at Oxford, did a PhD at Oxford and has become a very successful CEO of her own company. Our two pupils today who will be interviewing Holly are Ellen Heath, and she is hoping to go on to study chemistry at Bristol University, and James McKenzie, who is hoping to go on to study chemistry at Oxford University. So welcome all, and I'm going to hand over to you, Ellen. Hey, um, so as a current King's pupil, so what was like your best memories and like most long-lasting memories of being at King's? What kind of stuck with you over the years after you left the school? Um, I made a really solid group of friends, I think, at school who were all quite like me. We weren't necessarily the smartest or the sportiest or the anything-ist, um, but we were a very strong-willed and determined set of people, I'd say. We've all ended up now in really successful careers spread across lots of different spaces, so it's really exciting to see what they're doing. Um, I may be biased um, because when I think back, obviously, I think about how I got interested in chemistry, but for sure, my chemistry lessons are... Um, big memories for me. Um, Mrs. Chapman, as a person, was a big inspiring yeah. force in my in my early days. So, definitely those kinds of things together. Yeah, definitely. I've had Miss Chapman last year, and she was one of the main reasons of like chemistry is definitely for me. So, it's a life, like a, a lifelong legacy is what she does there. For sure. Right. Yeah. So you also went to study chemistry at Oxford. Could you tell us a bit more about it and what it was like as a degree? I can. Um, the highs and the lows. <laughs> um, Oxford's obviously an incredibly inspiring place to be. Um, there's so much going on, so it was a great three years. I would say chemists get it pretty hard in their undergraduate degrees. I definitely felt whilst everyone else was partying, I was studying. Um, and I think the reason I got into chemistry had been so inspired by its applications in the world. Um, and naturally, as you learn to a much deeper level, <laughs> I found I got further from the applications. Um, but at Oxford, you get the opportunity for a nine month research project um, in one of the you know, world leading labs. So that was obviously a major high. I didn't really want to do it. I was kind of terrified. I felt like a massive fraud and I'd have no idea what I was doing. But I settled into research um, really quickly and really loved it. And so now when I'm still in science, however many years later, and all my chemistry colleagues have gone on to other things, they look back laughing at how hard I'd found <laughs> undergraduate chemistry. Yeah. And how well I'm doing now. <laughs> yeah, so um, you obviously, as you said, um, enjoyed your chemistry degree at Oxford and went on to do a PhD. Can you tell us a bit more about that and maybe what you looked at in your PhD? Yeah, of course. So um, the group I joined was the group of Professor Kylie Vincent, and she was looking at really special enzymes that can split hydrogen to protons and electrons. Um, so they're kind of biological catalysts. They have really abundant, cheap materials inside of them, um, but they outperform platinum at kind of ambient conditions. Um, so they obviously could have applications in fuel and energy and things like that. Um, but my PhD was kind of taking those enzymes that she'd studied and translating them towards other kinds of applications, um, specifically applications in chemical synthesis um, and sustainable chemicals. Um, so it started off as a very kind of proof of concept. Can we even do this type of science? And then it quickly developed, well, at first slowly, but then quickly developed into something that looked like it could be useful for industry. 
and that's I guess where my more entrepreneurial side kicked in. Yeah. So you say your entrepreneurship side came in more afterwards. And so how did you know that when you were doing the PhD, you wanted to move on from that and like not go further into research and that you wanted to start your own company? What were like the signs that you wanted to do that? Yeah, I think I was always incredibly impressed by people who had lots of ideas, but I'm certainly the person that likes to take take those ideas, distill them to the ones I think are really good ideas and then do something useful with them. Um, And I think I found the academic setting quite challenging and I wasn't sure I wanted to necessarily become a professor with all the many things you have to balance and juggle. Um, And I started um, going on lots of training courses and thinking about what entrepreneurship actually meant. I didn't know much about it Um, and starting to think that actually my interests and my skill sets probably lay more in the kind of making research happen and making it useful um, rather than in universities. So although I didn't know at that time I started a company based on <laughs> the research from my project, yeah. um, I was excited to kind of move into that startup spin-out space. Yeah, okay. So um, when you were starting us off, like how did you like gain momentum for it and like where did you go to start your company? Well, it took a really long time, obviously. I finished my PhD and then I, um, me and my PI, Kylie, were awarded three million pounds for a translation project so that allowed us to build a team of seven people in the university Um, so not only was that good for the science but that was really good for me because it meant I transitioned from doing research to leading a team to thinking about talking to people in industry to trying to understand the context of what problems people face in industry how we might be able to solve them um, thinking about intellectual property and thinking about um, all those other kind of skills And that's what I had to get in place before I could even think about raising money or (laughs) actually starting a company. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So um, what would you have done differently when you started your company if you were going to do it now, let's say, rather than 10 years ago or however long? (laughs) It was only two years ago, so (laughs) not too much time to reflect on the mistakes. Um, But there are things that um, I could have done differently all along. I think the fact that I was developing at the same time as the science I naturally probably did things more slowly. If someone way more experienced had come in earlier, then they might have pushed us much faster. Um, The pros of that could have been that we were, you know, more revenue generating by now. But on the other side, staying in the university, staying academically focused for a bit longer, we actually have um, whole new areas of intellectual property now. So we have three or four new patents that might Um, eventually extend the scope of the company so instead of just plowing forwards with one thing we now have more strings to our bow so you know you could we could have moved faster and done things differently um but that it's not necessarily a negative that we're ending up in a different place and was your aim always to like branch out to different strands of or just stick with one thing and and how you started to do that like change a lot as you like experience what you're going to do with your company and did it change a lot as you went on I think we always had the kind of the first technology that we were trying to get towards market. And when I had the academic project, I had to balance the people who were there's need to kind of um, do what I'd asked them to do and uh, (laughs) make things work better and faster. Um, But they also obviously had their own academic curiosities. So they would find things and then they'd want to follow them up. And there was a lot of balancing exciting new ideas with driving the first thing forwards. Um, And I think we managed to keep a really good line with that um but that was as much about the people as it was about i don't think at that point i was thinking what the company might do in 10 years time i was thinking well what do these people need they need to do new stuff as well as um push forwards the kind of more standard idea 
Yeah, and so what are the main areas of like development currently happening, and how did you know you wanted to engineer it towards just like green and cleaner chemical and like fuel usage? What inspired that? Yeah. Um, so our technology makes it easier to use enzymes in chemical synthesis and makes it cleaner to use enzymes. And a lot of big chemicals companies at the moment, when they're trying to do specific chemical steps, they might rely on a precious metal. So that's a really finite, toxic resource, um, and they work at really high temperatures and pressures. And we began to see that our catalysts could kind of slot into their existing infrastructure, but use lower temperatures, lower pressures, um, and replace the metals with enzymes. And it just so happened that... Um, around the time that we were thinking of starting the company, lots of bits of kind of political and societal and financial drivers came in for people to think about these switches. So as consumers, we want our kind of personal care products to be more natural and less chemical based. Um, as, a, as a country, we want to um, make sure that all the chemicals we rely on are, have better supply chains. So we, you know, the country nearly ran out of paracetamol in COVID and we need to be able to make things like that in the UK. But to do that, we have to be more sustainable so, um, and cheaper and safer. So I think all these things started to come together. And I went on a big market validation course where I had to spend three months traveling just talking to industry about what problems they were facing. And that meant I spoke to kind of 100 different people to understand what their key drivers were and their key problems were. And that mm -hmm. helped me that helped me understand um, what we needed to develop. And, and that did happen to align with what we were able to do. So that was mm -hmm. great. Obviously, if it hadn't, <laughs> I might not be doing this today. <laughs> yes. And so in your company, how would you go about creating new research ideas to build upon your main aim of the company? So at the moment, I guess we're trying hard not to branch too far. Um, we're trying to get our first product to market and get some licenses in. But like you say, we don't want to lose that innovative spirit. Um, and there are areas we have to innovate. So um, we make enzyme, we turn enzyme into catalyst, we then develop processes. And at each stage, we have to innovate to make things better and faster and lower cost. Sometimes we collaborate back with universities. So now I'm an industrial partner on some kind of academic um, and industry grants so that's really exciting and that's how we can kind of outsource some of the really innovative stuff to them um, but yeah as the company grows we definitely plan to keep that innovative ideas generation going but for sure I guess our focus is on achieving the first goals for yeah so um, with your first goals of obviously getting your first project to market what are the challenges with upscaling this to getting it to the general market um, there's lots of challenges. Um, so the enzymes that we make are really specialised enzymes that have never really been scaled up before. So although enzymes are made at huge scales, I mean, they're in our laundry detergents, for example, so they're made at many tonnes a year, um, but the specific enzymes we rely on are not. So we've um, done a lot of work to try and de-risk that, but it's certainly still got some risk element. Um, for scaling up our processes, we work with external experts. So we make strong partnerships with companies that have different expertise to us. And that's really powerful. Um, and then, of course, we always have to get customers to make a change. And that's hard because customers, especially in chemical, chemical companies, they like the safe and the known and the tried and the tested. Um, so although they're really keen to um, change their ways and become more sustainable, um, there's still a kind of hurdle to jump over to get them to yeah. switch so we just talked about the challenges with upscaling uh, your product but what other challenges would you say is having a career in science as a woman um now i <laughs> i do of course get asked this a lot and i think um i have 
I don't think I've had many explicit challenges being a woman in science um, earlier on in my career. Obviously, having kids made that a bit more complicated because when I was pregnant, I wasn't allowed in the labs at all because they were <laughs> too dangerous. Um, I think it's now running a company that I see it more clearly. Um, I work a lot, obviously, fundraising and working with VCs and investors and things like that. And I think that's a, that's a really um, male-dominated environment. Um, and the challenges are possibly um personality based um in how these meetings typically go i think funnily enough covid was really good for me so my first fundraise everything was electronic um, and i was eight months pregnant and i could do 10 meetings in a day without any traveling any having to refuse wine any um <laughs> and in fact um people didn't even know i was pregnant until i told them so that was really um made it more straightforward for me in that context what led you to like want to continue this so obviously at school you really enjoyed it was there any particular like parts of learning about chemistry that really like inspired you to keep going um, I just love how science can solve problems and obviously um, sustainability has been a big and it's kind of been a, a growing um, trend I guess throughout my career so it wasn't necessarily so spoken about um, when I was at school but certainly through my university career it's become more and more prominent um, I think I ended up applying to Kylie's group um, because of the energy focus. So weirdly, my fascination with chemistry came from um, on the farm looking at engines with my yeah. dad and my cousins and uncles. And um, they would look at different engine types for different fuels, but they could never help me understand why different fuels needed different engines. And that's yeah. kind of that kind of understanding that um, of how, where all the sciences fit together. I just found that really fascinating that you could be an amazing engineer, but have no understanding of how fuels work. Um, why did I stay with it this long? I think um, in science, I wouldn't call myself a scientist anymore. I don't really do science on a day-to-day yeah. basis. I do a lot of leadership, bringing people together, resourcing people, facilitating things happening, um, talking about what I'm doing to investors. Um, and that really fits with my kind of personal <laughs> strengths, yeah. I guess, or yeah. even not strengths, but interests in communication. Yeah. Do you ever like miss being in a lab or is it something you kind of grew past and was like, I want to see more and did go in the lab last week it was fun I think I what's great about the lab is on a, on a good day you go in the lab you set something to do and you see it happen and that's yeah. just great that doesn't yeah. really happen in my world anymore <laughs> everything takes too long um, but I'm not really allowed in the lab I think it's really naive to think if you've not been in the lab for a few years you can go back in because yeah. um, the, 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 I did that recently and broke someone's experiment so <laughs> now I'm politely asked to, to go back to the office and <laughs> do my day job <laughs> What advice do you have to people like wanting to either get into science more or just develop their own company? Like what, like different, are they different and what did you find different challenges in each of them? I think my advice across the board is um, fairly standardised, which is um, invest in yourself um, because other people probably aren't going to invest in you. So I was, it really clear to me that I was becoming pigeonholed um, and people would say, you're a scientist, you can't be good at communication or you can't need a company. And that didn't fit with how I felt. Um, so I made it my mission. When I was told I couldn't do communication, I uh, won a media fellowship and went and worked at the Mirror for two, two, two weeks or whatever and put it on my CV. And I was like, does this fix your problem? So I think it was maybe stubbornness that drove me to think, um, you know, maybe at some point you didn't have to be able to evidence all your skills. But yeah. these days, you know, your CV is all you have to go on. So yeah. if you believe you're good at something, going out, doing training, finding evidence to have on your CV is really important. And still I get told 
you know, you don't need to do that. Like, you can tell people that at an interview or someone will write that in a reference. And I'm like, I don't think that's good enough in 2023. It needs to be <laughs> up and centre. If I believe I'm good at this, yeah. I'm going to evidence that and put it on my CV. Um, but the follow-up question I always get is, how do you find time? <laughs> or how do you make time? Um, to which I always say, you can't. You have to use your allotted time and you have to believe that investing in yourself is important to what you're doing now and important to your future. And therefore... Yeah take some of your current time <laughs> to do that in so you know I take time away from work to do things like this or equally yeah. to go hear people um, talk because every time I do that I just being in a new headspace helps me think differently but also the people I meet and the skills I learn always then have a positive impact back yeah absolutely and then do you just like like do you struggle with like promoting your company like to like a broader media and making sure it's known like among higher media just to get in more like widely known it's a real balance because you don't want to be too widely known without being able to fulfill requests that might come in um the biotech community so the kind of um the kind of community of companies trying to use biochemistry to make more sustainable chemicals is actually quite well connected um both as industry and university there's a lot of networks um so it's quite um easy to get started with networking and meeting people and now i increasingly get invited to go to those events and talks so um yeah engaging with the media and you know bigger than that um obviously it's more difficult but not necessarily something that i need to achieve right now it takes me back yeah. <laughs> we've now got like a little piano song in kings yeah. the um headmaster like made it and nice. so every bell is like a little piano oh, tune. Nice. that was not a tune special little bell Oh, um, can I just ask you? Because yeah. you, you just you, you talked a lot about sustainability here, mm. and um, obviously you you went off and you, you did a science, you know, a pure science degree, if I could call it that, and yeah, um, and yet you 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 now see in sort of applications of perhaps other areas. How far do you think that perhaps universities and even undergraduate degrees are going to need to go in becoming more interdisciplinary in yeah. in their approach because obviously I'm surrounded here by three chemists and yeah. I'm a geographer as, <laughs> yeah, but, but sustainability is very big in geography I mean yeah. do you, how far do you think now there's, there's going to need to be this sort of more integrated approach yeah. between the disciplines definitely I mean my team alone um, we're only nine people but we have a molecular biologist chemists process chemists chem, you know chemical engineer um, and my lovely husband is in um, climate policy so um, it definitely helps to have all of those um, different thought processes. Um, the most successful people I've seen are people who have maybe done a pure chemistry degree and then switched into something more uh, medical facing or bio facing. And then and then as their career has grown, kind of blending their skill sets together. Um, but yeah, I mean, science, it's not so much necessarily that one person needs to train in lots of different areas, but definitely teams need to be collaborative and interdisciplinary. Um, my original project was very interdisciplinary. It was enzymes and electrochemistry and um, throwing in some organic chemistry. So they were three things that you wouldn't typically see together. And that's probably where that kind of different way of thinking came about. Um, but going forwards, yeah, we need all those even the less science, pure science-based <laughs> skills in there too. And maybe can I ask a, another question, because you will have lived through this as, as part of your research, as a researcher, um, and, and it's sort of a little nod to the, the, the more normal political podcast yeah. <laughs> that we do. Um, 
Brexit and research at university, how is that? What, what did you see the impact of Brexit on the, the research world at, at university? I mean, by far the biggest obvious impact is um, not being able to include European students as home PhD students. So um, not all the kind of government funding that comes through, we used to be able to hire from Europe as well as from the UK. So I guess that's been, you know, we hear, you hear about the skills gap everywhere, but I guess that's um, that was the biggest um, immediate effect. Um, funding wise, um, Europe is really good at sponsoring really big collaborative um, projects. And I guess our place in that is more complicated now. Um, yeah, I guess they're the major ones. Um, the UK obviously has some positives, like they are really good at that. Um, early stage to start up um, mm. funding. So personally, I haven't, it hasn't negatively impacted me. However, <laughs> as investment dries up, that might. And, and do you feel that the current government policy or, or intent is there to support the research? Do you think government still very much values research or do you think it's sort of sidelined with other priorities? <laughs> see how it falls out yeah. after the Bayes restructure. Yes. Um, I think it's what's clear that I always hear is um, when the government makes a really strong signal, it, it makes everything so much easier. So, for example, Batteries now has really good academic funding, but also really good um, startup and SME and large company funding because everybody believes that the government is committed enough to roll out electric cars, etc. Um, when the str- signals from government are less strong, um, it becomes harder because people don't know if things will get adopted. So in the chemical sector, for example, um, I think people have a lot of fear around legislating too strongly because we need chemicals so much that, yeah, it just makes it a bit more complicated. So strong signals from policy certainly helps drive certain areas of science forwards. Yeah, okay. Interesting with the strong signals sometimes as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But of course, we are also good at the Blue Skies funding and the Blue Skies funding has to carry on because that's what all of this other stuff comes out for. Okay. Um, And then just one one last question uh, for me. So we often at school look at the curriculum that we're teaching. We often say, what should we be doing in the curriculum to make it appropriate, to, to make it future ready for young people of today going on into the world of work? whatever that world may be, whatever the work they, they, they go into. Um, what would be, if you had a piece of, uh, not so much <laughs> advice, but more, what, what would you like to see in the curriculum that may, skill-wise, or that you feel that every young person today, maybe maybe 16 to 18-year-olds, say, should be coming out with skills that they should have for whatever they're going on to in, in life? just one that's really hard I think um when you talked about interdisciplinary earlier that's a really important one it's very it's easy to kind of not easy but it's one thing to learn a subject and to be able to answer questions on it but being able to apply that knowledge outside of its context is obviously where um ideas come from and being able to communicate to a whole source of people comes from um funnily enough at school I was horrendous at English literature and English language and when I started my research my 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 boss Kylie's biggest bugbear was how bad I was at writing. And if you ask my team now, they'll say Holly's the writing wizard and Holly's the communication wizard. Yeah. Um, and it's funny that that came from the fact that I suddenly had something I wanted to communicate, um, which doesn't really answer your question, but it's very easy to get stuck in 
I guess, a, a subject. Um, and until you can see its use, it's yeah. very hard to want to understand it. Yeah. Um, but that's a big problem. Well, I mean, communication. I mean, yeah. it's what you're saying. I mean, basically, yeah. communication, isn't it? So, yeah. and, uh, and nowadays, of course, you can reach audiences in, in any manner of uh, ways, including podcasts, which, yeah. <laughs> which, uh, which we hope many people will be listening to this now. Right. Well, Holly, thank you, thank um, you. Uh, for for that sort of fascinating insight into uh, into what you're doing and uh, and some of those challenges that you're here. And thank you, Ellen and James, for uh, taking and hosting the Heaton podcast this week. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.